All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Brent Kudzerski. Brent is a sought-after keynote speaker and leader of Connected Worker Ecosystems at Hexagon, an international data company working in many industries from oil and gas to AI and manufacturing to improve the human condition at work, amplify skills, and create a seamless collaboration between humans and machines. So, Brent, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hey, so share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing. That's a great question. So thanks for asking. I love to talk about it. I grew up in a suburb of Pittsburgh. I could look at my backyard and see the steel mills. And I grew up uh, working through high school and all that in industrial mills. And my grandparents and great-grandparents were all mill workers, and uh, whether it was a steel mill or coal mine or, or whatever it was. And I always had that sense of industry uh, growing up there. So I went and actually got my undergraduate degree in industrial psych and training and, and went to D.C. and did a lot of work um with uh, military aviation training and behavioral psychology and behavioral science to figure out if F-18 um, pilots could handle the heads-up display and if we were giving them too much um, sensory um, you know, things to look at and work on. So did a lot of training and eventually worked my way to uh, Shell, where I was there for 25 years. And the great thing about it was I was always the global strategist in terms of HR human capabilities. So I did all their major HR people transformation initiatives like competence management or simulation-based learning, um, trying to make um, people perform better at work and put that human experience into manufacturing, which we all know is heavily risk-adverse and heavily tech-centered um, and we don't always think about the people. So anyways, I, I did a lot of that kind of work, and that's where I'm at today. I left Shell, and now I work with Hexagon and other companies to help them put um, a little bit of thought leadership in terms of what does it mean to be human-centric, why is it important, and how does it add so much value to companies today? Yeah, that's one of the things you think about in manufacturing. We used to worry about people leaving to go to another manufacturing competitor down the street, but now they're leaving the industry. They're going to go drive for Uber. They're going to deliver for DoorDash. Maybe they'll become a YouTube influencer. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. I I do a lot of research on the trends to manufacturing industry up to 2160. And that's where the futurists go. And when I work with clients, typically the manufacturing clients, they're in that wage area of $21 to $28. And mm-hmm. what they're competing with is they might have somebody that was like in Shell, they, they were driving a Domino's pizza truck, uh, and then now they're an operator in a manufacturing facility. Now what happens is they get in the facility 
And if that human experience of work isn't good, it's not satisfying, not rewarding, and they got a lousy manager, they're going to say, you know what, I can go make the same money driving an Amazon Prime truck, and I'll be by myself, sitting by myself all day and have full autonomy. It's a real issue where a lot of these companies are seeing tenure rates now that are like the average tenure rates, 1.7 years. And the huge percentage shift is they just don't have the people that have the what we call the level to get the expertise. People need typically like five years in certain categories of jobs to become what we call experts, where they can really diagnose, troubleshoot, problem solve, handle the abnormal situations. And they just can't do that today. And I'll tell you the other thing that they've got. When I grew up, I cut my grass, I changed my oil, I worked with tools, I did all those things. So I was uh, bumping my fingers and toes, wearing steel-toed boots, and I grew up doing that. The folks that are joining manufacturing facilities today, they maybe never picked up a wrench until they get into that Shell or that Chevron or that BP. So they don't have that the tacit knowledge around how to even deal with torque or pressure or anything with the you know physical um, and sensory kind of coordination. I think that's such an interesting point because one of the things to take advantage of your more tenured employee is to share the passion, the reason why they joined, like how they're making a difference in the world by manufacturing what they manufacture instead of just, this is your job. These are your responsibilities. This is what you'll be paying or what you'll be paid to really have more of that connection at work. And I know that's one of the things that you talk about is that growing disconnect um, where we're not connecting with our employees like, and it's I shouldn't even say like we used to because we never did before. <laughs> and, and now, especially in a post-pandemic world, we have to learn how to connect with that employees to make them feel valued and appreciated so that we can keep them longer than, 1.5 years. Yeah, there's a, I talk a lot about this thing called the X, XR gap, expectations to reality. And what companies don't get today is people go to work every day with expectations and they know, you know, what they're going to have to do in their job tasks. So that's what's expected of them. And they go into that expectations and say, this is either going to be great or it's going to be a lousy thing again, based on my previous history. And there's a thing called anatomy of work. So how frustrated do people get? Are there big delays in decision-making? Do they have the right information? Do they have to hunt and peck for information? What are all these things they got to navigate to do their jobs effectively? And most often, they're not really supported effectively to their personalized needs. And we're going to this era today, whether you go to a restaurant or you go to an amusement park, you have a new set of kind of personalized experiences because we're in this high concept, high touch age of personalization. And that with your Apple Watch or your anything you get, there's more features and benefits that are directed specifically to your preferences. But what's happening is people going into work and they're getting smacked in the face with, oh, it didn't work right. It didn't meet my expectations. Then what happens is now we've got all this connected worker stuff where we're not taking advantage of after the person does the job, let them process and reflect on the experience. And a lot of this connected worker stuff should be capturing what was the experience like and let the employee give feedback and incentivize them to give feedback. And then what happens is they go off and they think about what they did, and then they form the expectation for when they do this again. So this 
human cycle of doing work either improves or degrades. And we talked about this before, that the, the more it degrades, the more they're going to jump ship and go somewhere else and look for another experience. And that's the whole big thing. Like people today, I always say there's four things that every human being shares, and there's no difference between you can't escape it. Humans are all fallible. So you got to expect they're going to make mistakes and that's okay. So we've got to say, look, you're human and that happens. But the thing is they're adaptable so they can change, they can grow, they can get better or they can get worse. It's the, that's the whole cycle there. But then they're social. They want some kind of mirror held up to them to say, what's the social proofing? Am I, am I doing as good as others or less than others or better than others? Or do I fit in? Is there relatedness to me and my job and my purpose? And then the last thing is this whole idea about purpose and meaning. They want to say, like you said, am I doing any good? And especially today, you look at our Gen are uh, Zers. They wear the shirts that support their brand. They buy the beer that supports their brand cause. Everything they do is shouting out to the world, this is what I believe in, or this is what I feel is important. It's so interesting. And I'm going to just talk about the elephant in the room right now, because there's been this philosophy for so long that employees must change to adapt to my company. I'm not going to change for them. They have to change for me. And especially in a post-pandemic economy, that's not working. If your organization isn't willing to personalize the experience, to connect with employees, to give them purpose, they're not going to stay. So they want to work. They want to be loyal. They want to find a home that they can be committed to. But there's caveats to that, like you just said, and particularly the purpose the representation of Gen Z coming into the workplace, which is the largest generation ever, that if you can't figure out what, how does my company make the world a better place? How can I ensure that my employees are proud to work for me? You're not going to keep them and they're going to go somewhere else where they can brag about the brand of the company that they work with. And it won't be you. Right. Yeah, I, I was talking to my son the other day. He's a recent grad at Georgia Tech and chemical engineer, and he's now working for Eli Lilly. And I said, what's the most important thing to you right now? And he said, working for purpose and having a livable wage, because he wants to have that life balance of, I want to do something great, and I want to really feel engaged. But at the same time, I want to have a life that affords me to do activities, go to concerts, go traveling, go do these things. And I think that's what industry hasn't recognized yet. Because look, if you look at the history of industry, and I'm going to start in the last hundred years, just take the last hundred years. In the 1920s, we started with like scientific management with Frederick Taylor. People were considered simply tools, just like a shovel, just like a drill bit. That's all they were. They were to do a, a job, a single kind of task, and that was it. And then in World War II, we got to this thing of productivity because the big war, War II effort to have this mass production. So it was all about productivity. So they said, what can we do to get people more productive? And they started to see it's all about advancing to the work cycle with some automation and kind of coupling that. But then it got into the 70s around 
this more of the engagement. So they said participative management, quality circles, TQM, and all these kind of things. And then finally, we got to this uh, area of expectations and experience. So like in the early 2000s, it was about, are we meeting their expectations? And again, we talked about this war for talent by McKenzie in 97, when it was all about getting people in the door. But again, I experienced in all of my consulting and work, Companies were patting themselves on the back because they were thinking they were getting the best people in the door. But once they got in the door, everything fell apart. They weren't doing anything to keep them. And so that was the next disconnect. So from 2000 to 2020, this 20-year period, two decades, we still haven't figured out that it's not about just getting the best people that you can find. It's getting the best people to stay. Exactly. And one of the things that you that you work with your clients on is that enabling human centricity. So talk a little bit about that. What does that look like, again, in the last three years since we're getting into this decade or work philosophy of connection, of human connection? So I'll give you an example. There's this whole law of technology acceleration, and it says that the faster, the more technology advances, the faster it advances. And what happens is there's this trap that we get into with technology that we start to rely on it so much. And you look at the oil and gas industry that we've relied on fossil fuel so much that now we're in this big thing. Are we going green or not? We would have been thinking about that 40 years ago and really trying to ease our way out of fossil fuels instead of having the big fast smack, it would have been a different kind of trajectory, right? So what I talk about is a a human-centered design. And if you think about people, there's three things in the environment that people have to have. They have to have a clear purpose, clear expectations, and clear feedback. That's the first box, okay? So I know what I'm supposed to do, and is people telling me, giving me 30, 60, 90 feedback. Then the next thing they have to have is the right tools, resources, and information. And it has to have quality dimensions to it. Is the information timely? Is it accurate? Is it accessible? Is it understandable? All those things. And then the third thing in the environment is the incentives. Work can be punishing or rewarding. And oftentimes the people, and again, I always believe in the 80-20 rule. I find that probably 80% of the work in a company is done by 20% of the people. And 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. So what happens is a lot of times you'll find somebody that's really good. They get more work shoved on them because they know and are trusted that person's going to do the wood work. So they start to say, wait a minute, I keep doing a good job. I keep getting more work. And old Sam or Darlene, they're getting off easy. They're on their iPhones. So we've got to make sure that the anatomy of work, uh, the reward recognition and the, and, the, and the deployment of work is equitable. When we talk about inclusion, equity, and, and all those kind of things, it's got to go into the avenue of the work task as well. And then you get to this individual level. And these are all the individual factors that drive human centricity. So does the person have the right skills, knowledge, and behaviors? And how can you give that to them and build that? But here's the thing today. People want skills and knowledge and behaviors that build their pedigree, that build their employability. Organizations today most often think about giving people skills and knowledge that benefit only the organization. And you're going to learn the skills that I need you to know, and you're going to have to know the knowledge I need you to know. 
But people want more than that. They want to be able to be more matrixed and developed because they got to build a resume. And I always tell people, you got to knock something off your resume from last year to put something better on from this year because you've got to grow and expand and broaden and deepen and all those things. So then you get to this next thing that's a real crux for today. And we talk about this and people, again, because I'm a historian of all this stuff, you think about the fables we grew up with kids. John Henry, Joe Makarak was an industrial steel worker, Paul Bunyan, all of these Casey Jones. This was American heritage saying we're fighting the advancements of technology. So John Henry could beat the steam drill. Joe Makarak could forge steel faster than the, the, the big steel rolling pins. And so... We even had it in like m music culture. You had a bunch of songs about the working man. You think about people like Bruce Springsteen and things like that. Now we've got to move from that to say, no, in tomorrow's world, the dull, dirty, dangerous, demanding work goes to automation and let them have it. As human beings, we have to evolve to the next century, the 2022, where we're more cognitive thinkers. We use technology and analytics and data that's been curated and rendered for us to help us use our big brains. We're more um, creative. We've got this stuff. So we use this human creativity more. And then we're more collaborative. So as, may, as organizations go from being very siloed and hierarchical, they're becoming matrix. So people have to be able to collaborate across functions, boundaries, and divisions. So I think that industry has to understand that these power skills, and I call these three categories power skills, that there's a new level of intellectual skills. There's going to be a new level of creative skills. And companies aren't getting ready for that. They're, they're In my mind, a lot of them are, are sleeping through it. Exactly. And you look at when you're, automation, when you're automating your plant, and you had mentioned it too, but look for the work that employees hate doing the most drudgery and start there to automate. And just a little by little, because we've AI, we've seen that just explode in 2023 from a personal level. It's been around manufacturing for a while, but now everybody on the planet or a lot of people on the planet at least know what AI is and they may be afraid of it, but it's not going away. So I love what you said about allowing us to use our bigger brains and to be more creative and to, to again, see the world differently instead of that drudgery that's always been associated with manufacturing the dark, dirty, dangerous in changing the conversations and letting people know that we're listening to you, you matter, we're able to do the work Product, producing things efficiently because of the automation, because of the AI that we're using, but we still need that human element in there to really build the whole picture and create right. the type of workplace that keeps people. Right. It's funny. I, I, I'm always thinking to myself, I can always improve, get better. And I was just spent the weekend with my son going to the Steelers game. And he's so much better than I am in terms of just how he is, how he thinks and how he engages. I grew up with the, the industry work, hard, heavy, you know, dirty, get it done, push through. And my mantra always was lead, follow, or get out of the way and just push it through. He's much more finessed. I mean, he tells me now when he's working, he's always offering help to other people. Before in our generation, it was more knowledge is power. Hold it to yourself. Don't tell anybody what you know. 
And he is the total opposite. He's helping people. He's sharing. And he's building his brand where he's got what I call this knock ratio, that there's more people knocking on his door as a 23-year-old than he has to wow. knock on other people's door just because he is he did orientation. And instead of just reading the orientation, he knew there was going to be a flood of other people coming in after him. So he made a little training manual out of the orientation to help identify the key points of all the things he read and curated. And he's giving back and saying, I can be creative, I can be collaborative, and I can use my big brain to help curate and render stuff for other people. So it's a totally different mindset than we had 30, 40 years ago. And it's so interesting, especially I'm glad that you shared the age of your son, because he dispels the myth that young kids don't want to work and they don't want to do this. And all they want to do is play video games or be on YouTube all day long. And we judge people unfairly because if we give them purpose, if we let them know again, how they make a difference, how they fit into the picture, we personalize the attention, we personalize the experience for them. And then also that whole thing about training well, you're not just training them for the work. You're looking at that employee holistically and investing in them. Right. You know, how can you have them be a better speak a speaker if they're going to Dale Carnegie or Toastmasters or something along those lines so that when they're in a meeting, the meeting's not going to be painful because they actually present or giving them opportunities to use their creative skills. You know, I had one of my clients that actually hired a dream manager. And that person came in and she worked with employees like one employee loved baking pies. So guess what? She was the go-to person for every holiday. Another guy took a financial wellness class and he became the instructor to help other people manage their finances well. You look what employees are good at, not what they're physically capable of doing to make the job better but how can we improve them as human beings so that we have a better workforce? And if the time comes that they do choose to leave, not only are they better people, but maybe they become a referral source for us for new employees because we treated them so well and gave them such a good experience. Yeah. And, and, and it makes me think, like, again, I said, when I was working at Shell or wherever, I was like the hard driver. I was going to take that hill. And again, if I saw people that I didn't think were you know, smart enough and, and being an expert in what they should be an expert in or working hard enough or slacking off, I discounted them and I just pushed on forward. Well, I see my son today. He lifts those people up. So it's a different generation of thinking because I was trying to shovel coal in the furnace faster and seeing I was putting more, I was dropping more than the other people were putting in. And it brings me to this whole thing that we spent decades giving people skills and knowledge. And again, I'm a big, I'm a big advocate of competence management based on kind of the work from David McClellan years ago and Richard Boyosits, uh, Boyosits has done it and uh, the singers and all that. And competency was really supposed to be about the whole person. It wasn't supposed to be just about skills and knowledge because there's much more to what I call the whole person competence development. And if you think about it, yeah, we got skills and knowledge, but that's basically for your company. But what differentiates people are their motives, what motivates them. And we talk about purpose and drive. We talk about traits. Are they dependable? Are they tenacious? What is it that uh, is the traits that they want to develop 
Then we talk about their self-image. What do they think about themselves? Are they are we building up their image? And then they're lastly their social role. Are they the caretaker of the meeting? Are they the person that's a positive influence on the group? And if we develop people at that kind of portfolio, companies start building, and I advocate, I think managers and companies should not be coaching and development people, especially in manufacturing type companies. These people are technical people. They generally don't present themselves as great leaders and coaches. Um, so I think companies like Shell or whoever it might be, BP, they should outsource that coaching because it it it, it disconnects the person somewhat from the organization because the person might say, hey, I got family issues. I can't tell my boss this, but I also want to I want to be a coach in co- the company or I want to advance or want to be a manager, but they might not feel safe telling their manager that. And the other thing that external coach can do is help them develop their whole person. Because it's really about making people more employable, uh, whether it's in your company or not. Because I think the future is going to be more altruistic where companies say, whatever is best for you, employee, and the company's an employee is going to say, whatever is best for you, company. And if we meet and if we continue to grow together, that's fantastic. But let's help each other out either way. If I need to get out, let me get out. If I need to stay, let me stay. So when it comes to the future of work, and you mentioned a couple things just in those last couple um, sentences, but what do you feel that people listening to this show, there's the old proverb that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, that the next best time is today. So if somebody listening to the show is thinking, man, I have got to get on the ball and start implementing some of these. What would you say as far as some best practices to get started to really address the future of work and the employees that are coming in? Again, if you want to grow and keep and connect with them. I think, look, we're in this era of what I call content shock. And the best content must rise to the top to get people's attention because we're flooded with it. We've got 16 modes of uh, communication coming at us every day and people just can't absorb it. And if you think about in the 1800s or 1880, the average person might have had a part of a newspaper to read and that was it for three weeks. Now today we've got we're flooded. And I know that one of the things that drove me to work with Hexagon is that when I was at Shell, I knew how much content we had, and I knew the quality of that content wasn't great, and I knew we had an opportunity to digitize it. And for example, we had these things called OTI, Operator Training Manuals. And when I looked at them, we had 2,200 of them and over close to a million pages of content. But when we Mm. digitized it and reviewed it, 60% of it was redundant, and it was all in SharePoint. Nobody ever accessed it. And so a lot of the companies that I consult with, now I'm helping them to build a top-down architecture of all their content. So we take their seven capabilities in in typical most companies. And every one of those seven capabilities has about seven core competencies. And every one of those core competencies has about seven core tasks. And every task has about seven core um, skills. And every skill has about seven core knowledges. And so you can make this hierarchy and you can use tools like I use it. This is a tool, a hexagon called Accelerator, and it digitizes all that content. 
And then, so as an organization, now you have this digital library of content that becomes these reusable learning knowledge objects, learning objects. And then you can digitize them. We say, now we've got, we know in this company, we've got 600 concepts. We got porosity or whatever it might be. And then I can take all that stuff and I can render it in a digital form. Like I can make a digital animation, a digital illustration. I can make a simulation, an interactive simulation. And once and for all, it's done. Most companies can't gather up all their information. They don't know where it is. Most companies don't curate and render and treat it like an asset. And today you have to. I talked to all these companies that their onboarding programs are flopping. Their people can't find information. The information is all different. This site uses this information. And that's so we don't treat this information as a as a as a quality asset. And today we've got these tools and people aren't using them. And it makes me crazy. Exactly. Wow, we have covered a lot today. So as we get to the end of our time together, if you were to leave our listeners with your best tip as far as uh, connecting with workers to, to make that better workplace that not only attracts, but keeps employees, what would that be? I think that there's a couple of things. If you go to human-centered design, and most manufacturing companies, if I asked your listeners to raise your hand if you've done a persona for manufacturing workers, they'd all raise their hands. They'd say yes. But that only scratches the surface when you talk about these human-centered design principles. And there's really like 15 core principles about human-centered design. Most companies scratch the surface by doing three. The ones that they do are personas. They do proof of concepts, getting people involved in, hey, did you like this? Did you think it was good? Do you think it'll work? And they do a little bit on getting people's feedback along the way or post-after action review. But there's a lot more to having human-centered design. And I think in this era now, most manufacturing companies don't know where their connected worker system is owned. They don't know if it's in operations. They don't know if it's in IT. They don't know if it's in HR. And then beyond that, most of them don't take a real a scientific approach to connected worker ecosystems. They basically go to their vendors and whatever vendor pushes the most and has the easiest to implement single point solution and whatever person can buy into that, they do it. And it creates a mess. They don't go to this end-to-end total ecosystem. They typically don't have a chief connectivity officer or chief experience officer. And they're not creating the new roles that society now demands us to have. We create hundreds of new roles. We didn't have a digital architect 10 years ago. We, We do now. But they're not moving fast enough to create the roles that are needed. And And I just want to say one last thing. In the 90s, when companies used to do like business process re-engineering, they used to pull people off and say, hey, we need Jim and Sally and Sam and, and Samantha and bring them into this business process engineering roundtable review. And they might spend two hours a week for six weeks contributing. Today, with connected ecosystems, you can't add it to somebody's day job. It's just it's too much. You need a concerted effort to really implement these things. And companies don't understand that. That's why 85% of all these things fail, because they don't design them to win. And I always tell people, like, like in football, only 30% of teams or less make it to the playoffs, all right? It's the same thing with digital transformation. Less than 30% of 
digital transformations deliver the value, deliver undiluted value or succeed. And I think companies don't, they just don't, they don't get it that it's hard work and you got to be up for a bit of a fight. Exactly. Brent, this has been a really fun conversation today because, again, like I told you at the beginning, you're one of my people. We talk about a lot of the same things. So if people did want to connect with you or get in touch, uh, what's the best way for them to find you? The best way is just connect with me on LinkedIn. Just uh, send me a connect request. And I always and I even like to actually talk to the people I connect with because I'm one of these folks that kind of likes to know who is in my network. All right. Brent, it's been great having you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Lisa. Good to talk to you. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community will all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.